0: On Thursday night, I quoted from a book that I was reading, Surprised by Oxford is the name of the book. It's about a student who goes to Oxford. She goes as an atheist, and at Oxford she meets some Christians, and she ends up putting her trust in Jesus. Uh, but in her book, she speaks a little bit about her father, and she writes this. She doesn't give all the details, leaves you you're wondering what actually happened, but Here's what she says, After that first visit of the sheriff to our door, my father disappeared and reappeared. But he never seemed to hold a job for long. And each new scheme came with promises, but no deliveries. For long stretches, my father was nowhere to be seen. Then later on in the book, uh, having heard a little bit about God as father, uh, she writes this, Fathers especially were not to be trusted. They did not even seem relevant, really. That much I had learned. That much I brought with me. And then later on, whenever a particular Christian is explaining to her about God and about Jesus and about Christianity, she says this, she's quite angry at this point, she says, "'You want me to believe in this God of yours?' This male God, this man Jesus, this unknowable, invisible, indefinable, I spat out the last word, Father. You see her her venom. Um, Why did Jesus come? At one level we might answer that question by saying he came to save us from our sins. Uh, Or we might say, he came so that we could go to heaven, so that we could have eternal life. But to say that misses the point. The cross, Jesus dying, are only a means to an end. And heaven itself isn't the end goal. Jesus didn't die simply so you could go to heaven. Jesus didn't die so that you could have eternal life. Jesus didn't die so that you could merely be forgiven. Jesus died to bring you to God. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Jesus died so that you could know the mighty creator of the universe, so that you could spend forever In his presence, the fountainhead, the source of all joy and delight. The whole point is that we were made to know God and to be with God, to know him intimately. And that's why Jesus came all throughout the Old Testament. God is referred to by a whole range of titles. But the vast majority of them are that he is the high and lofty one, the holy one, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He's the one who sits supreme over all the nations, who rules the floods and the crashing waves. There's majesty and there's sovereignty, there's power, there's holiness. He's far, far above us. Then we come to the New Testament. And now that we've got that idea of the majesty of God in our minds we find that Jesus died not simply so that we would have peace with this mighty high and holy God but that we could call that God exactly the same thing as God the Son calls him. Jesus says when you pray say Our Father. Say Father. Jesus died to bring us into this startlingly close, intimate relationship with mighty God. And as Jesus comes in John's Gospel, particularly in John's account, we see that Jesus wants to display to us this God. And he wants us to see, particularly God the Father, John 1 Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The one who's the only begotten of God, He's at the Father's side. He has made the Father known to us. In John 5, 17, Jesus says, My Father's always at work to this very day, and I too am working. John 10, 37, I do what my Father does. John twelve forty four. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. In John 14, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. His goal is to show us the Father and bring us to the Father. What a wonderful statement. 109 times in John, Jesus calls God Father. Above all else, he's come to bring us into relationship with God as our Father. He's been at pains to underline the reality of the relationship that we have with God as Father, that he has with God as Father, but also the character of the Father. He's just like Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. If you've seen me, you know who God is. You know what he's like. In Hebrews 1, we're told he's the exact, the exact, the Son is the exact representation of the Father. And now he speaks again to the disciples. Uh, these last moments before he goes out to be crucified. And he speaks to them, and he, he they're still confused. And Jesus admits to them that he has been speaking in a sort of an enigmatic, puzzling fashion. And part of that is simply because on the other side of the cross, before the the crucifixion and the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, it's so hard to, to get their heads round what he's talking about. It seems so obvious to us. But we've seen the crucifixion and we've seen the resurrection. We know they happened. But Jesus speaks here of a time when there will be a new clarity he speaks in verse uh, 25 though i have been speaking figuratively a time is coming when i will no longer use this kind of language but i will tell you plainly a time is coming verse 26 he says in that day and what when's he speaking about he's speaking about a time after his crucifixion after his resurrection when things will be clear there's a day of clarity coming Jesus tells the disciples, and then he gives them a little hints here of what that clarity will involve. At least three things, and we're going to look at them this morning, they will be more clear about the Father. They will be more clear about the Father. We see that in verse 25. They will be more clear about prayer, specifically, their access to the Father. And after the the resurrection and after uh, Jesus has ascended into heaven, they'll be more clear about the love of the Father. And so, appropriately, on Father's Day, this is where we have arrived in our study of John's Gospel, where Jesus wants us to see clearly what his Father is like. And he sets before us three things. Remember, he's saying, A day will come when you will be more clear about these things. So he doesn't unpack everything here, but he gives us three little glimpses of what this new clarity will be about. And as you read on in the New Testament, you find the writers setting out in ever-increasing richness our relationship with God the Father through God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. So first of all, new clarity about the Father New clarity about the Father. Verse 25. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. And really this heading includes the other two. They're aspects of what we see more clearly about the Father. And we see Jesus speaking over and over again in these verses. The word Father just keeps reoccurring. And this is the Father, and this is what he's like. Jesus wants us to grasp a a bit of here. But this is the bit I want us to see here. He's going to unpack two things about the Father in a moment. But in this point, I want us to see that Jesus brings a new clarity about the Father to his disciples after the resurrection. And we live after the resurrection, so we should have a new clarity about God the Father. God the Father in a sense, is the, the foundation of Christianity. He's the one who, who gave the Son. He's the one who, with the Son, sends the Spirit. He's the one who has commissioned the Son. In John, Matthew 11, Jesus says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. John one uh, eighteen says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only Who is at the Father's side has made him known. So the Son is sent to make the Father known. Jesus says in John 14, No one comes to the Father except by me. Notice what he says No one comes to the Father. We all appear before the judgment seat of God. We all appear before God. But how many of us will appear before Him as children appearing before a Father? Everyone will appear before the same God, but only some of us will appear in a different relationship to that God, those who have come through Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say here that they will have new clarity about God. He says he'll speak plainly to them about the Father. They're entering a new relationship uh, entering a, a new clarity in their relationship with God. They're learning that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That although he's one, he's also three. There's a a unity of threeness, or a triunity, or a trinity, as we call it. And Jesus wants them not just to think of God simply as God, high and exalted, The judge before whom all men must appear. But he wants them to grasp that there's been a complete change of relationship. That they've been adopted, is how Paul will put it. They've been adopted into God's family. There's part of the increasing clarity that comes later in the New Testament. Jesus says after his resurrection to Mary Magdalene, I am ascending to my Father And your father. He's not making a a distinction, I don't believe, as if there's some difference between my father and your father. He's saying, My father is also your father. Do you grasp that since the resurrection, we have a relationship, a clarity in our relationship with God, that we know him now as father? You know, it would be easy to make Jesus our focus. It would be easy to think generically of God. It would be easy to think of the Father as a, a little distant, uh, maybe a bit more demanding than God the Son. It would be easy to see Him through the lens of our own fathers, whatever experience we've had of them. That was uh, uh, Caroline Weber's problem as she thought of God as Father. She didn't want to know God as Father because her own experience of her own Father had distorted her image and view of God as Father. But Jesus tells us he's exactly like him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've revealed him to you. I'm a dead ringer. or He's a dead ringer for me. It's your Father who sent his Son for you. It's your Father in heaven. You've put your trust in Christ who has spread this table before you. It's your Father who gave his Son for you. It's your Father who adopted you. It's your Father who delights in you. The rest of the New Testament sets out this richness of the Father and his character and his love. They relish the truth of adoption, the New Testament writers. They relish the clarity that they have. I want to ask you, do you feel like you have a father in heaven? Do you feel like you have a father who rules the universe and who loves you as if you were the only being in the universe? Christ has come to give you new clarity in your relationship to God. Second thing. And under that, really, is is we've got new access to the Father. New access to the Father. Verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. In that day, in that, that time, whenever things are clearer, after the resurrection, Jesus says, you will ask in my name. You will ask In my name. He said that over and over again in these chapters from chapter 14 through to 16. In chapter 14, verse 13, he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name. The next verse, you may ask me for anything in my name. Chapter 15, verse 17, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Chapter 16, verse 23, I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is the seventh time in these chapters that Jesus talks about asking and receiving. Six of those times he says specifically we're to ask in his name. A writer called Brian Chappell tells us this. He says, prayer in Jesus' name is not an incantation, to make us worthy of divine attention, it is a confession that we are unworthy of even approaching God apart from the mercy and merits of our Saviour. We're only fit to come, clothed in Christ. We're only fit to come in Jesus' name. But we can come, and we must come, and we come to the Father With the same degree of expectation of an answer that the very Son of God Himself has. You know, we don't get it this side of the cross, but the the Old Testament believers didn't have that awareness of the closeness and the the richness of access that they had to God in prayer. That they would they came as a suppliant to a king. Coming as a servant or a, a, a citizen to a king. But now Jesus says, You come in my name. And you have the same degree of expectation that I have of getting an answer. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's why we normally pray to the Father. Let me ask you, to whom do you address your prayers? Yes. We're allowed to pray to Jesus because Jesus said in chapter 14, you may ask me for anything in my name. But the predominant pattern in Scripture in the New Testament is that we now come to the Father through the Son, helped by the Spirit. Yes, we can address God as God and Lord and majestic and high and exalted God. We can do that. But normally, are our prayers addressed in recognition of this great access that we have to God the Father. I wonder if we pray, if how we pray reveals how we think of God or how we miss out thinking of God, if we're always praying to God as the Lord, the God of heaven, the great and majestic one, do we grasp how much care he takes of us? How he's like a mother hen holding her chick in her arms, or like a a mother holding her child in her hands? Do we grasp the closeness that he's like a father cradling his infant in his arms? Do we grasp that? If we always call him God or Lord, we're losing out on the richness of the address, Father. Or if we're always addressing our prayers through Jesus, If we're always doing that, could it be that praying through Jesus reflects that that we think of the Father as being a little bit distant or Jesus as being more on our side? Well, Jesus has opened the way to the Father so that we can come to the Father like he comes to the Father. He's made it all possible. He's brought us into the family. It's not because of our righteousness or our obedience or our performance that we have a right to pray to God. It's because of Jesus. That's why I ask people sometimes when they say, Oh, I'm, I'm a good one for praying. Sometimes I'll say to them, well, well, do you think God hears your prayers? And They say, Oh, yes. I say, Do you think God will answer your prayers? Oh, I believe he will. And I say, Why do you think you have the right To expect God to answer your prayers. Look at what? No surprise if that's just God's job. That's what he does. But prayer isn't an automatic right. Of being human. In Proverbs 15 we're told. The Lord is far from the wicked. But he hears the prayer of the righteous. In Proverbs 15 verse 8. He says the Lord detests The sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. And the way Hebrew works is that there's a a parallel going on and prayer and sacrifice are in a sense interchangeable. The Lord detests the sacrifice or the prayers of the wicked and the prayers and the sacrifices of the upright please him. See, prayer is a blood-bought privilege of the children of God. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father... We come bearing the name of Jesus, accepted in the name of Jesus, being heard because of Jesus, adopted because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And Jesus is highlighting the wonder of the new closeness that you have to the Father. And part of that is, you can come to the maker of heaven and earth and say, Dad. You can come to the one who orchestrates and controls everything and you can say, I'm worried about school tomorrow. Help me with this exam. I'm struggling with this temptation, Dad. Will you help me? It's incredible. It's like ringing the richest man in the world on 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 his private family mobile. And he looks at the number and he doesn't recognize it. And he goes, hello, who gave you this number? And we say, your son did. He said I was to ring and give his name. Oh, that's okay. What can I do for you? I see how it changes everything coming in the name of the Son. Brian Chappell, whom I quoted a minute ago, says this, Thus, we can be very bold, not because we deserve to be heard, but because the one who speaks to the Father for us, I hear this, provides us with the privileges and power of his identity when we pray. We've got the privileges and power of God the Son's identity when we pray. We may speak with the familiarity, privileges, rights, and the voice of the Son of God whenever we pray to the Father in Jesus' name. Is that not astonishing? Utterly amazing. There's an extraordinariness to prayer that we can lose sight of amidst the routine you get to call him Father. God is guaranteed to always hear you, because He always hears the Son. And you come in the name of the Son to pray. And note what Jesus goes on to say. He's saying He goes on to say, and it's a little bit puzzling. He says, "I'm not asking, or sorry, I'm not saying that I will ask the Father in your behalf." It seems a little strange because earlier he said, I will ask the Father for you and he will give you the, the counsel or the Holy Spirit. But what Jesus wants the disciples to grasp at this point is that when we come in Jesus' name, because of Jesus' work, he does not have to twist the Father's arm to get the Father to listen to us. He's not, the Father's not going, oh, okay, son, I'll, I'll listen to your people now. No, the Son says, there's one thing I don't have to do and it's to ask the Father to hear you. I don't have to ask him that you're coming in my name you come with all the rights and privileges that i have jesus may ask the father for many things for us but he will not say father will you listen to that person there that that person that i died to rest will you listen to them oh the father is all ears for christ's people and when we come in jesus name and we say that at the end of our prayers we start off, with say, Father, and we finish with, in Jesus' name. That phrase is a, a delight to our Father's ears as he hears us come. We don't just tag it on at the end because it's like, you're sincerely, amen. You know, it's, in Jesus' name, for his sake, for his glory, we ask these things. Oh, how it delights the Father to hear such prayers. And how that should encourage us to pray. We've been really challenged at our synod meetings this week to pray, and to pray and to pray, and to be much more in prayer. But we have this great access to the Father, so to be challenged to pray and be encouraged to pray and think about how you pray. And we're reminded here of the price of access; it's a blood bought privilege. And then, thirdly, a new awareness of the love of the Father, a new awareness of the love of the Father. Jesus says, verse 27, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I've said that Jesus doesn't have to twist the Father's arm or ask him to listen to us. No, indeed, he says, The Father himself, and there's real emphasis in the Greek there, in the original language. Himself, the Father, loves you. Himself, the Father, loves you. Here's the wonderful truth of the richness of God's love for us. Our great fear is that God the Father is maybe standing there with a big stick ready to, to batter us or to beat us. We feel inclined to come timidly to him or to avoid him. And some people create other characters who will go to the Father on our behalf. Maybe it's Mary or maybe it's the saints. Or sometimes our view of the Father is distorted and we think, well, we'll come to the Son because He's the friendly one and we'll we'll, pray to Him. But no, Jesus says, for He Himself loves you. Jesus says, I know my Father and He loves you. He loves you and He's been at pains to emphasize this Throughout John's gospel to those who love the Son and trust the Son and follow the Son, he says, "He who loves me will be loved by my Father." John 14:21. John 14:23. "If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him." Wonderful. Why is it the Father loves us? Well, Jesus gives part of the explanation here. He says, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The disciples experience the Father's love because they love the Son. Now maybe you're thinking, hold on a minute, Mark. I thought God loved us while we were yet sinners. I thought it said that we love because he first loved us. It sounds here as if you're saying that we earn the Father's love for us. Well, that can't be right. We are told that we love because he first loved us. But Jesus isn't talking about the disciples first coming to him. Jesus went out and found them and called them and summoned them because he loved them. And that's what he did with us. God loved us before we were yet sinners and he came and summoned us and we came to him. But what's the disciples' current Heart towards Jesus now. They love him. They love him. They've been rescued by him and they love him. They're flawed and weak and feeble, but they love him. And aren't we the same? We're flawed and weak and feeble. But if we've put our trust in Christ, if we've been sought out by him, we love him. And God God the Son says to us here, you love me. Because you love me, my Father loves you. He delights in you. He listens to you. He cherishes the fact that you love his beloved Son. And what an imbalance there is here. The Father loves you because you love the Son. And we love the Son with weak and feeble and faltering and frail love. And it fails and we stumble and we fall. And it's so imperfect, and yet the Father sets on us an unwavering, unfluctuating, doesn't-run-hot-and-cold love. These disciples were all over the place, yet Jesus gives them the most glorious assurance. We love imperfectly, but he loves perfectly. A new awareness of the Father's love. Do you grasp it? This side of the resurrection, we have a new awareness of the Father's love. And it's a Father's love. It's a giving love. In fact, that's what we see here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And if he gave his Son, Paul writes in Romans, if he gave his Son, how much will he along with him graciously give us all things? This Father's love is a giving love. are you aware of that do you believe it that he will give for right. try? this father's love is a patient love it's a patient love fathers need to remember that their children uh, have little developing brains and little developing bodies they're not capable of doing all that we want them to do they get tired easily They get distracted easily. They don't know all the consequences that we know. They they can't see things panning out the way we see them pan out. And we need to be patient with them. And we are loved with a Father's love. And He doesn't expect us to have divine foreknowledge. He remembers we are dust. He, our frame, well knows, Psalm 103. He loves us with a patient love. Putting up with our faltering, stumbling folly. And a father oversees his children and provides for them and takes care of them. And when they're weak, he is particularly tender towards them. And so our Father in heaven is an overseeing Father, looking out for his children, ruling everything for their good. Are you aware? Have you an awareness of your Father's overseeing love for you? And fathers discipline their children out of love. Not frustration or exasperation. We shouldn't do that. And we should repent when we do do that. But our perfect Father in heaven disciplines us to rescue and reshape us out of love for our good. Perhaps certain things you've been going through, you've felt His fatherly hand disciplining you. It's because He loves you. He loves you. And it's a delighting love. Fathers should have a delight in their children and an affection for them. But they don't always. But in Scripture we see that we're told of God's delight in his children. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. We're told he rejoices over us with singing. We need to be reminded that this heavenly being relates to you as a perfect father should relate to his child. Those of us who are fathers, we need more help to be this sort of a father to our children. And yet our Father in heaven loves us enough to do that. Maybe our children are grown up and beyond our influence. But you have a Father in heaven whose influence they are not beyond. And he says to you, I'm your father. Trust me with your children. I promise I will be a God to you and to your children after you. Maybe our own fathers were absent or distant. They were all flawed to one degree or another. But do you grasp that you have one father who is never absent, never distant, never flawed? Have you got that new awareness? As you come to the table this morning, this table helps us He loves you this much that he would send his son for you. That despite how much he loved his son, he would pour out his judgment not on you but on his son. He would bear that pain, as it were, in himself of punishing his son rather than punishing you. Have you got an idea of the Father's love? We'll double it and double it again. And it by all the stars in the sky and all the grains of sand on the beaches all around Donegal. And when you've got some idea of that, that's about 0.1% of how much he loves you. Let me finish just with a, a, a quote from the great Puritan theologian John Owen. I'm going to try and modernize the quote because he wrote in the 1600s and he wrote massively long sentences and it's hard to follow but it's rich and sweet. He says essentially the disciples have become comfortable with Jesus' gracious words and faithful promises. They they know what his heart is towards them. They're fully convinced of his tender affections to them. But now he's going. And now and these and they're ready for his departure. But then Owen says, all their thoughts are now concerning the Father. How should they be accepted with him? And what respect did he have towards them? That's their great concern. What does the Father make of us? We know what you make of us, Jesus, but what about the Father? And then John Owen, as it were, puts words in Christ's mouth. He says, take no care of that. Do not Impose that burden on me of procuring the Father's love for you. But know, know this, that this is his particular attitude towards you. He himself loves you. Jesus says, don't ask me to get him to love you. He himself loves you. There's one thing you don't need to ask Jesus to ask the Father. You don't need to ask Jesus to ask the Father, Will you love me? Jesus says one thing. There's one thing I will not ask. I will not ask the Father that. For he himself loves you. I'll pray that the Father will send you the Spirit. I'll pray he'll send you all the gracious fruits of his love. Then Owen says this, But yet in the point of love itself, free love, eternal love, there is no need for any asking for that. For eminently the Father himself loves you. Not asking for that, because eminently the Father himself loves you. Then he says this, resolve, resolve. And I going to put it in more modern words, that you may relish that love and be no more troubled about it. Don't worry any more about that. And then he says, Yea, as your great trouble is about the Father's love, so you can in no way more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness in not believing it. Resolve that you will relish and enjoy the Father's love for you. Be no more troubled about it and don't grieve him by harboring doubts about his love for you. Look at the table. If you've put your trust in Christ, this is how much he loves you. And if you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, the table is not for you today, but Christ is for you. Take him and come to Christ and say, will you take my sin and guilt so that I can have God as my God and my Father, and I can be adopted into his family. As you sit here this morning, if you've put your trust in Christ, then know this, the Father delights in you. Do not let your heart be troubled any more about it. Let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, what a title. Thank you that we get to call you this. What a stupendously glorious title. How wondrous that you would allow us little rebels made out of mud That you would allow us to call you Father. That we would be so loved. That you would send your Son to go to the cross. To have his body broken and his blood shed for us. How we thank you. We thank you for the access that we have in prayer. So richly purchased by the Son. So gloriously open. Forgive us for not using it as we ought. Forgive us for harboring doubts about you as our Father, deeming you hard and severe, doubting your kindness. Lord, help us to resolve not to trouble you anymore by not believing your kindness and love towards us. Father, we pray that you would pour out your blessing on us as we come to the Lord's table now. Feed us and nourish us and refresh us with this reminder of your deep love for your people. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Just as we close, as we leave the Lord's table, I want us to take two things with us. It's Father's Day. Christ has said that after the resurrection we're going to see more clearly our Father in heaven. So let me leave us with two applications. First of all, rest in Him. Rest in Him. Will you rest in your Father? Will you rest in your Father's love for you? Resolve, as John Owen said, to be no more troubled about it, for He Himself loves you. God the Son says there's one thing I won't ask him to do. That's to love you. do won't ask him to do that. Be no more troubled about that. Rest in that love. And rest in his care. You know, in Matthew 6, Jesus talks about worry. He says, don't be anxious about anything. And he, he says, you know, the, the, the birds of the air, they, they sow or they don't sow and they don't gather and they don't reap. And yet, They're fed and provided. He says, your heavenly Father provides for them. He's, He's the creator of the birds, but he's your Father. And if he provides for the birds, how much more will he provide for us? And then Paul takes the argument from the other end of the spectrum. Jesus looks at the birds and the flowers and says, your Father made them like that. How much more will he care for you? Paul looks at the cross and says, if he gave us his son, he'll not come up short on anything. So rest, rest in his sovereign fatherly care. He is doing what's best, even when times are hard and difficult and we're not sure what's going on. He does know and he's planning it for your good. Rest in him. And then secondly, resemble him. Resemble him as the Son is the exact representation of the Father, so we are being made like the Son, and we will resemble our Father in heaven. that should be our desire and our prayer and our goal, that we would resemble such a Father. We would resemble Him, those of us who are fathers, that we would portray to our children, that he is this sort of a father and that in general all of us would grow more and more Christ-like and in becoming Christ-like we become like the father. Rest in him and resemble him. Now receive the blessing of this triune God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of you, now and always. Amen.